0: Welcome to Two Open Doors, the podcast that explores our power to open or close the doors of relationship with the important people in our lives. We hope you'll learn from and share your wisdom with our community. Thanks for joining us. Pleasure is a powerful source of motivation in our lives. We are literally neurally wired to seek out pleasurable experiences, just as we are equally strongly compelled to avoid or minimize our experience of pain. Have you stopped to think about how these driving forces work? How they influence what we seek and what we do? It's worth our while to understand these, at least at a high level. Pleasure can be thought of as a mechanism that motivates us to pursue things that help our survival and prosperity. As Darwin suggested in 1872, emotional or affective reactions were selected through evolution because they were triggered by survival-enhancing actions, and that these reactions became the basis for our emotional expressions. In some species, the unconscious core emotional reactions developed subjective or conscious level feelings of pleasure. Note that we distinguish between subconscious emotions and conscious feelings or awareness of those emotions. Pleasure actually has three distinct components. Liking, or an emotional reaction that builds desire for something that we deem good, Wanting, or a motivational process that guides us to act in particular directions, and Learning, through which we associate particular stimuli or experiences with goodness or badness, or with pleasure and pain, and through which we build consciously accessible memories of these associations. Each of these has a different set of underlying neurobiological mechanisms. It's important to note that pleasure is something that many assume to be a purely subjective feeling. However, the occurrence of pleasure can also be objectively observed through measurable hedonic or pleasure-oriented liking reactions, such as facial expressions, activity in specific brain regions, etc. We humans experience a reward-behavior cycle through which we want something and then, like that something, All the while, we're learning to associate reward, or good feelings, with what we want and are pursuing. The neurobiology that underlies the reward behavior cycle is complex, but isn't directly relevant to our discussion here. From the brief discussion of the cycle, though, we can observe several things that are relevant here. First, our subconscious emotions, or wanting, exist independently of our conscious reactions to those emotions, that is, our liking. That means that we're not always aware of what we're experiencing at an emotional level. Second, our emotional level liking of something can drive us to seek that something, sometimes dragging us in different directions than what our conscious mind might dictate. That's what happens in the case of addictions, for example. Emotion is a powerful thing. By extension, the emotional experience of pleasure is also a powerful thing. Wanting Directs how we go after something that we perceive emotionally as good. Wanting plays out through our behavior or actions. Of course, those actions can be quite varied, and that can lead to some paradoxes. For example, our default response to emotionally registering pain is to get away from the circumstances that seem to be producing that pain. However, in some BDSM practices, people may seek out objectively painful circumstances because those circumstances can register as pleasure. This example leads us to another observation. The emotions that we experience are flexibly connected with how we register those experiences as good or bad, and with what actions we take to pursue or escape from the cause of those emotions. Few experiences are neurally hardwired as pleasurable or painful. Instead, We learn to associate emotions with an affective valence, that is, good or bad assessment, and with specific actions that we can take to pursue pleasure or escape pain. Pleasure and pain are very malleable experiences. The same pleasurable or painful experience can be consciously perceived differently by two different people. That means it's important for us to not assume that something that we like or dislike will be received identically by someone else. Our pleasure and pain associations are different. Let's consider now the roles of pleasure in our lives. So, we've just seen that pleasure is part of the foundation for the human psyche, and that it's an important part of what motivates us in life. At the same time, we can look around and see the suspicion and distrust that our society associates with pleasure. What is going on to cause such a disconnect? The French philosopher Michel Foucault provides some guidance for our explorations. In his work, The History of Sexuality, Volume 2, The use of pleasure he identifies three topics that he seeks to investigate the first is the science that helps us to understand sexuality second is the powers that attempt to regulate sexuality and third the individual recognition and experience of our sexuality let's consider each of these facets regarding the scientific study of sexuality we've come a long way since the end of the 19th century The science of sexology, of which I'm a practitioner, has much to tell us about how sex works and about how sex participates as an important aspect of our life. We'll have much more to say about sexology in a future post. Over time, the science of sexology has evolved from focusing almost totally on physiological mechanisms to a realization that the human experience of sex spans our mental, emotional, and spiritual life as well. That realization provided much of the impetus behind my development of the EMP model, which has been the subject of multiple prior posts. These days, sexology takes a holistic approach to understanding and explaining the full breadth of human sexuality, as seen through the lens of gender and sexual orientation. Behaviors and orientations that have been pathologized in the past, such as homosexuality, are now realized to be part of the wide spectrum of human sexual experience. The different experiences of sexuality that are reported by the male, female, and non-binary gender are all given due consideration, in contrast with the narrow, male-focused explorations of sexuality in the past. The science of sexology is proving to be an invaluable tool in recognizing and normalizing the panoramic sweep of human sexuality. Let's turn next to considering how power has been brought to bear on sexuality over the centuries since the late 1600s. Christianity seems to have had a fraught relationship with the human body since the birth of that religion. Christianity has positioned sexuality as an occasion for the occurrence of evil and of sin, as the occasion for the fall of mankind through Adam and Eve's weakness, and even as a path to death and eternal damnation. It's interesting to note that the reference to the altered consciousness of the posed orgasmic state as the petite mort, or the little death, In contrast, many earlier Western cultures, such as the Romans and the Greeks, held a much more positive view of the importance and legitimacy of sexuality. They seemed much more comfortable with the human body. With Christianity's negative positioning of sexuality came concerted efforts to control and regulate what was seen as a strong and distracting influence. Religions, and the social organizations and governments that reflected those religions, laid out and stringently enforced restrictions on the exercise of sexuality, going so far as to demonize pleasure and to position sex as only a vehicle for procreation. People raised with such a negative perspective have, unsurprisingly, had a very turbulent relationship with their personal sexuality. That discomfort persists to this day, as is evident to anyone who reads the daily news. Because of the resulting social norms... Individuals can experience a sharp distinction between how they believe they should behave in society versus what they may want or experience in their inner being and private life. That creates more than a little cognitive dissonance. The third aspect of Foucault's look at sexuality has to do with how individuals experience and embrace desire and sexuality in their own lives. That's an area which has evolved tremendously over the years. When Christianity still held almost uncontested sway over people's lives, there was little room for individuals to think much about their sexuality. Religious beliefs and strictures provided a moral straitjacket that all had to wear or face societal sanctions. The 1960s provided an occasion for some free thinking about sexuality, and we still enjoy some of that freedom although it feels as though our contemporary society has discredited that freedom to some extent as being naive and self-indulgent. Conservative thought seems to be sweeping us back in the direction of religiously motivated sexual repression and control. Hopefully, the resulting regression won't prove to be long-term or irreversible. Given that sexuality is a large part of our humanity, The personal experience of sexuality is a big contributor to either our happiness and contentment or our neuroticism and fear. One of the main goals of Two Open Doors is to help members realize that we each have choices as to how we experience our sexuality. We can choose to continue to empower the constraints and negative perspectives that our social programming imposes on us. In contrast, We can choose to embrace our sexuality as a fundamentally good and positive thing that can bring us much pleasure and satisfaction, even while recognizing that a force as powerful as sexuality needs to be accorded respect and moderation. This very important decision is what to open doors refers to as the adult power of rejoicing. As in all aspects of our life, we're responsible for picking a life path that best suits our goals and desires. Having that power of choice seems like a very hopeful thing. To learn more about Two Open Doors and to engage with our community, I'd like to invite you to visit the Two Open Doors website at twoopendoors.com and the Two Open Doors Facebook group. Finally, I invite you to contact me directly by writing to me at claude, C-L-A-U-D-E, at twoopendoors.com. I'd love to hear from you, and I'll use your inputs to guide my work on future blog posts and podcast episodes. Thank you for visiting to Open Doors.